Want to take your investments to the next level with private equity? We're talking about investing in cool ventures from fintech to space tech. If so, this one's for you. I hope you enjoy it. And if you do, be sure to subscribe and consider leaving us a review and sharing it with your friends. Welcome to another episode of In Your Best Interest, your personal finance podcast. I'm your host, Philip Müller, and today I'm here with Joseph Habib, board member at Vestu. He will share his experiences in private equity, from his top tips in private equity investing to how he completely transformed and sold a cookie company for six times its value. Joseph, it's great to have you on today. So please tell us, what's your background and how did you get into this space? Um, I actually um, was born in Libya, grew up in Italy. And in Italy during the 70s, conditions were really not that good for anybody that was interested in studying or getting anything done. So I looked at going to study in the United States. I then discovered that if I went to Canada as an immigrant, I could actually get an equivalent education but also uh, have substantial subsidies from the government. So that's exactly what I did. I went to University of Toronto. I graduated as an engineer for two years. Then I went to the University of Michigan and got my uh, MBA. Then I will now answer your question as to uh, how did I get to private equity? I really made two, two very quick observations. I knew what to buy and I knew what to do with it once you buy it. What I did not know was how to buy it. A company. And uh, as embarrassing as it is, I went through all the business schools and never considered the option of being an investment banker. In hindsight, I think I would have been a much better investment banker than a consultant, but that's a longer conversation. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, from that, then people told me, go into private equity. It's the easiest way to do it. Eventually, I got hooked with a group called Exor, which is the Agnelli family from Italy. So I joined them. We were one of five multi-billion dollar entities that could do leverage buyouts. So um, that was their that, family that office of, of the Agnelli family? Correct. Okay. The history behind it is that it used to be called IFINT, IFI International. And oddly enough, during the 70s, the family was really concerned about what would happen in Italy. So they took the equivalent of $100 million dollars and shipped them to the States and said, just buy stuff, which is what they did. And then that created um, a structure that uh, continued to be active even recently when they bought Partner Reinsurance, Partner Re, is really came out of the United States. Um, so after four years with them, I had this idea that actually, um, if you were to bring high-level skills, managerial skills, to the middle market, you would actually accelerate performance. So I started to look for an opportunity in middle market. I joined a group called First Atlantic Capital. It was a very small group. It was $80 million in size. Half of it was invested. The other was not. And I joined with the express intent to get them to the next level. So I invested the first, um, the first $30 million in the, of the company, in a cookie company, best company I've ever bought in my life. And then we raised the $350 million fund with a $150 million co-investment vehicle. And we went from four professionals to 12, et cetera. And then time went by. I, I loved private equity. 
I, I think it's a incredible experience, whether you are an executive running a private equity firm, um, a, a private equity owned company, pardon me, or even more, if you run a private equity firm. Uh, the breadth of exposure that you have is beyond belief. The management on the operational as well on the financial side is crucial. And at the end of the day, you either have leadership or you don't. So I think it was a great testing ground. No, super interesting. But so if you tell investors, for example, um, you know, they have their portfolio and there's, you know, there's a lot of companies now actually that make it a little bit easier to invest into private equity, uh, even if you're not an accredited investor. Um, you know, there's companies in Europe like Moonfair, um, one of the digital startups, right? Uh, you can also invest through, you know, buying the shares of a company like Blackstone or KKR, right, as a publicly traded company. Um, so more, and then you hear a lot more. I feel like the last five years about private equity and you know as an asset class. So how how would you describe to an individual investor why they should have private equity in their portfolio or not? Like, what would be your reasoning for that? So um, I would say that if you're looking for a catalyst to accelerate returns on equity, there is no better vehicle than private equity. Now, it's risky. That's true. Because, you know, when when you're running or overseeing a company that has 70% debt, you better have a good mechanism around you. But it's less risky than people think. I, I will tell you my single biggest lesson learned If you remember, I told you that one of my premises was bringing high skills to mediocre companies. Well, I'm here to tell you that that is really not true. Okay? It's true up to a point. But you cannot, I would say, you cannot turn a donkey into a thoroughbred. It's it, it, it just not going to happen. Now, why do I say this? Because I believe that the fundamental attractiveness of private equity is extraordinarily strong on larger size deals. And by larger size deals, I mean transaction values that are from a billion dollars on up. Now, why is that? First is that you have much, much easier execution. Those deals are debt supported through a bond offering. There's clearly a process because you have to hire an investment bank, accountants, prepare the documentation, the prospectuses, etc. So that's the first thing. It's easier execution on the debt side. By contrast, just to make it briefly, um, if you try to raise money for a $150 million transaction, you're typically looking at a senior sub type of structure. That means you're going to have due diligence up the wazoo by the bank multiple covenants, lots of mechanisms, quarterly reporting, mezzanine benchmarks, you know, discounts to your budget. None of that exists in the bond market. So if you were to ask me where, with hindsight, yeah. where would you invest? That's what I would do. The second reason why it's so important is because I always used to call it the shock absorber. A small company, if it hits a bump, along the road, it could be anything. 
you know, a furnace stops working, you lose a big customer. It, the wheels come off. It's like disaster city. Because your, your difference between positive EBITDA and negative being below break even, it's never that high. In a large company, it's a very different story. You can take a hit and you can rebound. And if you want, the best example of that to me was during the 2008 crisis. I think the last point that I, I would highlight when it comes to larger private equity transactions is that they give you much greater degrees of freedom on exit, which at the end of the day is the only thing that matters. And also, because one thing that is crucial, from the buyer's perspective or the investor perspective, the amount of effort that you put into a small transaction versus a large one is at best equal. And in many cases, in a small one, it's much higher because they're not prepared to handle those questions. That was a lot of finance talk, so let's simplify it a bit. Basically, private equity investing can be highly profitable. And Joseph just mentioned three key learnings from his experience. One, that private equity investing gets easier the larger the deal. We're talking from a billion dollars and up. That's where you have professionals handling the process. Second, larger companies are better able to withstand crisis. And third, in most cases, larger deals require less work from the investor. Next up, Joseph will share how you should approach private equity investing, the megatrends he's keeping an eye on, and how he's teaching his daughter to save and invest. So stay tuned. Yeah, now you talked about transaction sizes, right? How would you go? So I know you you have you, you run your own firm, right? Um, if investors are looking to uh, you know invest their own money or allocate percentages of their portfolio towards the private equity space, and they get access to you know various um, private equity firms and then their funds, and they have different funds with different you know mandates. Uh, how would you go about that manager research? Or like if, if you would say allocate money now yourself towards private equity, different private equity firms, um, where would you start? Look, I'm, I'll, I'll talk about the United States yep. market because it may be different. But in the United States, the truth of the matter is that the overall space has been consolidating quite substantially. So you now have behemoths literally, that operate in that space. Now, why is it that somebody like uh, Blackstone or KKR and alike are able to raise 10, 12, 20, 50 billion dollars? The answer is very simple. It's track record, track record. So what you need in a private, in selecting, I would say that the first thing is no question track record. The second thing is what value added does the private equity firm bring? If you look at any of the big names, they were very bright at creating advisory boards, you know, non-operating chairmen, counselors, that they just parachute inside the company, not to take over, but rather to be a yeah. resource to the CEO. And that is invaluable in the scheme of things. The hang-up when you're a small firm like we were, 
you know, we brought, we tried the same thing, but we couldn't pay the fees that these guys were able to offer to some hotshots. Um, so I think that that second one is what the value does the firm provide. Third, I think that you need to really, when you're investing in a fund, it's crucial to read the perspectives, to understand where are they going to invest. And I'll tell you why. The, the economics of the fund, if you are the fund manager, is comprised of two elements. One is fees, and the other one is return on the carry. Fees are directly proportionate to the size of the fund that you generate. And some of these entities today generate very large amounts of money by simply a, uh, raising more money from investors and charging a 2% fee. So when you look at, um, you know, you mentioned uh, before Blackstone being public, KKR, and others, they took the management company because it helped them on a couple of ways. First, it provided liquidity to the existing people, which didn't have it. But just as importantly, they can go to the stock market and say, look, independent of performance, this management company has this fixed yeah, revenue base. It always basis. comes in. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right? Um, so I, I, I think that um, you, you need to really understand the sector they want to operate in, um, you know, how, what is their approach to diversification? What is their approach to oversight of the company? Uh, some people are totally hands-off. Successful, you know, they do, they spend a tremendous amount of time selecting yep. the management team. Uh, others are more individuals that will put grease under yeah. the fingers. No, that's interesting. Let me ask you this question then. So let hypothetically you have a friend that comes to you maybe he's you know like uh, you know he made money he worked hard right like it's investing his personal portfolio friend of yours and he's asking you about private equity should i allocate some portion of my overall family's portfolio towards private equity how much would you tell that person to put into that in the, into the private equity space and then within the private equity space would you suggest to go invest in a few different funds that are, you know, complete or different funds and maybe different funds of different private equity firms to even diversify that part a little bit. What would be your advice for the, for, for a friend like that? Um, so I, th I think uh, a lot of it depends on how much money is available, but I do not believe that one should go higher than 25% allocation to private equity. Um, You know, for anybody that is a novice at it, just to understand it, it could be a number like 10 to 15 could be a good starting point. As to, you know, how to allocate that depending on the funds available, I would not actually put money in different funds under the same company, especially in the early stages, because you should use that phase to really understand other players. It's like the dating yeah. game kind of thing. And then you'll figure out that you get a line to somebody 
more than with others. So I'd, I'd pick like two to three. I'd see how they perform. I would be patient because, you know, you can get lucky and get returns in three years. But, you know, hold periods have been extending to five, six, yeah. and seven. So understanding also the liquidity aspect of, of investing in that asset class in general, right, is very important. The other thing that is going on is that, you know, traditionally private equity has actually operated um, in more traditional industries and business. But that's not the case anymore, right? Um, if you look at some of the biggest home runs by private equity firms have actually been in fields like cybersecurity, um, medical, um, data reporting, some of these things. And as unbelievable as it sounds, those are companies that actually trade initially for eight to 10 times. So they're able, because of their relationship, to actually secure a capital structure where bank uh, or the market will lend six to eight times yeah. of, of debt. Now, I have a very good friend of mine that actually did this with a company when he first started it. The company was worth $500 million. Uh, he bought it for 10 times. He put eight times debt. I told him that to me that was a suicide trip. Um, but he, he said to me, you, you just cannot believe how fast this company wow. is going to grow. And he was right. Two years later, he sold it for $4 wow. billion. Dollars. Yeah, that's a nice return. A quick too. <laughs> quick, extremely quick. So, but if you look at the news, these yeah. things are happening, you know, but some, some elements of technology are no longer you know, sitting yeah. on the wayside. Yeah, no, these new, t uh, these new, new, f you know, new industries, right? That 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 emerge with technology. Look at, for example, and that's why I think some of the global players are actually looking overseas. I was totally stunned that KKR, as an example, is looking at buying the uh, Italian uh, cell phone company. Stunned, you know. But I understand what what is promoting that thing. Yeah. Thinking. No, absolutely. So, so th that that's super interesting. I think uh, you know, for investors, that that gives them something to think about and, and some good guidelines uh, uh, from someone that's been in this space. So, what I do want to ask you a couple other questions, though, is, um, uh, and I want to get to what you're doing now a little bit because I know you told me some super interesting things uh, before when we when we spoke a few months ago. So, I want to get into that in a second. But you said earlier, uh, and I correct me if I'm wrong, but you said uh, your best investment that you've ever made was a cookie company. Do you want to tell us just really quickly about that? And then I also want to get into your worst investment. And you don't have to name them, but it's just like it's a good for people to understand a little bit what makes something to you very good. And I'm sure there was also things that didn't work out so well, right, over time. But uh, good to understand what the re now with hindsight, what you learned from it. Sure. Um, so the with regards to the cookie company, um, it was the company was called Otis Punkmeyer. When we bought it, it, it actually, we bought 60%. The former owner retained 40%. I was convinced he was going to continue to work with us. Literally right after the deal got signed and I walked up and shook his hand and said, it'll be fun working together. He looked at me, he said, I have no intention of spending one time 
one minute on this company anymore. Call me when you sell it. <laughs> so why did it work so well? Um, the CEO that was there at the time had this grand vision about taking it into the retail space and supermarket and everything else. We decided to take the company in a completely different direction, which was to put cookies in all high traffic areas where people repeatedly show up. So, for example, American Airlines was one of them. Uh, our cookie were on American Airlines. If you went to Disney World, you found them. If you went to stadiums, we put them into every stadium that we could think of. We actually were the first ones to introduce cookies in hotels. Now in the United States, very often yeah. when you check in, they give you the cookies. And at the same time, we actually expanded the capillary distribution of the product. Um, we then did some modifications on, on some of the products and added a few. But to give you a sense, we bought it, as I said, that it was around 6 to $7 million in EBITDA. We sold it for $42 million in EBITDA. And you can just imagine, and it was only four years. So, you know, when you have a multiple of six on the EBITDA, the multiple on the transaction was huge. And my friend, the former owner, on his 40%, took home two and a half times what he took on selling the 60. So <laughs> he always said to me, yeah, it'd be fun to uh, have you. No, that's awesome, because I think it really shows what you guys, as a private equity investor, added value to that to that company, right? By going, you know, hands on and really like changing the way they were distributed. So I think that's really interesting for listeners to, 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 to understand more, you know, what, what's the value that a private equity firm actually brings to the table. Strategy, strategy, selection and execution are the fundamental ingredients. Management is right there with it. But if you don't have the strategy right, you get in trouble. Um, you asked about a, a tough situation. Um, we actually bought a foundry uh, that actually served the railway industry. Um, we, it was an old foundry. We didn't pay much for it. Um, but what happened was that while, while we were trying to recover the volume, we probably shortchanged maintenance on the capital equipment. And then all of a sudden, overnight, the volume picked up like by a factor of three to four times. We were ready for it because we had prepared the facility infrastructure, but we had not quite comp com completed all of the improvements. Our sales went through the roof. We were doing extremely well. And right in the middle of that, we had two furnaces. One was actually being rebuilt. The second one was working perfectly well and it stopped. And for as much as we tried to fix it, we just simply could not get it done. Um, so that created a huge havoc because, of course, if you're a foundry and you don't have melted steel, there's not much you can do. Uh, we looked at options of bringing them in with trucks and alike, but it was just prohibitively expensive. So that was probably the single toughest thing that, um, that actually we went through. Against any, the, it, it was a shame because every single piece of that company had actually been fixed. And, you know, everybody on my team, as well as at the client, kept saying, at the company, just kept saying, 
shit, all we needed was another two months and we would have been out of the woods because the other furnace would have been ready. No, but hey, you, you live and you learn, right? I think it's really cool to see both like a good example versus a bad example. And also the having that diversification within the portfolio that you can, you know, support some of the losses, right? In order to, 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 uh, to make the gains yeah. back on the other companies that do work out, right? Exactly. Um, so looking back now, and this could be about your, your company or what you're doing now. Um, but since this is also a personal finance podcast, right? How would you say your personal investment strategy has changed um, from the time you started until now, where you now, what, 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 what you know, like, how did it start and what, what are you interested in now, basically? Uh, so when I started the firm, I basically dedicated just about every cent I had towards the company because I kept saying to myself, if I'm asking others to invest in companies I buy, I should be the first one to do that. Um, in, uh, you know, a few years ago, I actually shut down Protostar. Um, so I had to really decide what to do uh, in terms of investments. And I, I will preface this the following way. First of all, the single most important decision that you can make as an investor is what is your risk tolerance? Because that ultimately dictates what you will choose and what you will not. That's the first thing. The second thing is I think as an investor, it is always, always beneficial to actually decide on a certain amount of money that you're prepared to lose 100%. It could be $50,000, it could be 100, it could be 2 million, doesn't matter. So with those two tricks, um, I basically try to do two things. I, if you look at my portfolio today, it's made up of three pieces. One piece is within the stock market, US okay. exclusively. I do not investing internationally. Uh, I don't buy this argument that over the long run it provides diversification. Now, I don't know the Asia markets, I should say, okay? But, I, you know, in, America, in the United States, they are constantly telling yeah. you invest in Europe, <laughs> invest in Europe, not me. So that's, that's a big bucket. Within that, the sectors that I try to look for are, call them either mega trends or actually consumer-driven things. What do people talk about all the time? You know, I was a very, very early investor in uh, Google and Amazon, but just because everybody was telling me that they were buying yeah. stuff, I didn't even know what Amazon was. I had, I had no clue. But the more I thought about it, those were so keep your eyes open to what's happening in the world. I think the second piece is the risk, the risk side. Um, I have never dabbled in that risky space, but I actually am a big player now in options on selected stocks. And I think that if you're prepared to lose that money, the rewards over the long term of an option-driven strategy can be very, very positive. Um, and, you know, your cash exposure is nowhere as close. So your leverage, get, if you get yeah. it right, if you get it wrong, you're screwed. But that's why 
hey, yep. first you got to decide how much can I lose. The is what I'm doing now. I actually think that the world has changed and is changing at extraordinarily rapid pace. Um, so I've tried, especially because I'm in Israel, to spend more time with startups and new technology entities. Uh, I think I mentioned it to you as well, but I did mention it to uh, um, when when I was talking last. Um, I'm actually now officially connected with a group called Our Crowd. It's uh, the single largest um, VC fund in Israel. I was just asked to join their investment committee. It's a group of 50 of us from all over the world. But this is a fund that is uh, over $1.2 billion, and it's all oh, raised wow. through crowdfunding. Yeah. Amazing place. So just go to the website. Yeah, it's called Our Crowd. You will enjoy it. So that that is a funnel. Since they're so pervasively present in the Israeli uh, VC community, it's a funnel to everything that is happening. Within the funnel, I have chosen several areas. Uh, fintech, I think it's one. Vestu, as you said, is one example. Vestu is basically creating insurance linked securities that are then traded publicly. I'm super happy to say that this is a company. I was the first investor. So you're an angel investor, ago. basically, there? Totally, totally an angel. They're very gracious time they say that but they just raised um uh, the latest round was at 300 million dollar valuation when when the one before was three months before and it was at 90 so it's oh wow that yeah. these guys will you know reach unicorn stage very quickly uh, i'm also involved with another company called space pharma that actually has some activities in singapore Space Pharma is a CubeSat, a small satellite that inside of it has the functionalities of a $150 million um, uh, chem chemical and physical lab. And this is used to conduct medical research for, for um, antibodies and alike in space. It's a fascinating field. Why? Why are they? Why are they, this, this is interesting? Just for me to understand why are they? Um, why are they looking to do that in space? The research. What's What's the benefit of doing it? So, so in space you have what is called microgravity. Yep. In the, on Earth you can create zero gravity, but you cannot duplicate it every time, which of course for medical research it has to be the same. Same, yeah. So you okay. get zero on average on, on Earth. It's minus one plus one, and then it's minus two plus two, and that's no bueno. Essentially, any molecule gets expanded by a factor of 100 to 1,000. So crystals are much more defined. The structure of the molecule is much more identifiable. And if you're specifically targeting a certain area, then you can actually pinpoint where it sits. Um, you know, but space is a... It's massive how rapidly it's growing, that that uh, environment. There's a, so much money, Philip, going after space. If you think about it, it's yep. Branson, you have everybody. When, 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 when I was growing up here, or 90s and 2000s, I think uh, 90s especially, it was a little bit more, right? Because there were still like these space shuttle missions that we always saw on TV and things like that. But I felt like for the last 
you know, the last two years, it started a lot again. Like it was so much more in the news, right? With Elon Musk, with SpaceX, like reusable rockets. You go up much more often. Uh, actually, it was really interesting. A few weeks ago in Portland, it was really dark. And we were at a friend's house. We live on the, just outside the, the city on a, on a little hill, mountain range. There. Right. And it was so dark. You could see it, at that night, everyone knew it was coming out. It's the, the, those satellites that are very close to Earth, that Elon Musk, the Starlink ones. It's pretty insane to see that so close and so lit up that row of because they're so close to Earth, right? And I think more and more, I, I think for me and like I feel like even with friends just talking about it, also we're not in investment space. It's getting it's getting much more exposure again. I think it's really cool and interesting. Uh, everything space related, it's getting so much interest now again. This the pace of development is insane. Go, there are two things that will change dramatically in the next zero to three years. One is the emergence of mini shuttles will be be operated like a taxi system between Earth and space. Second, commensurate to that, is alternatives to the International Space Station, which, as you know, it's old, but decrepit and about to break in million pieces. But the new ones instead are really unbelievable. So there's very active uh, involvement about getting manufacturing done in space, uh, 3D printing. Um, These are really unbelievable. If you want to look at a company that I think is phenomenal, it's called Sierra Space. It's a privately held company. Uh, It's traded, but it's controlled by a husband and wife team from Turkey that bought the initial kernel of it just a few years ago for a couple of million dollars. And it's not worth like a billion and a half. Yeah, yeah, super interesting. So uh, so where do you spend then most of your time now uh, researching these things? Or what, what are some of the, the resources you use to get, uh, you know, introductions into, in, into, that, into these areas? I, you know, what I try to do is with every company that I meet, I ask them to introduce me to at least one person. So the way that I'm expanding my network is exactly that way. Um, because, because otherwise you get stifled. And the truth is that it's impossible, impossible to keep up with how fast the ecosystem is changing. Um, for kicks, just go to the website that I told you about, our crowd. Um, yeah. and access it. You can see what kind of deals they have. Keep in mind that our crowd spits out one to two deals every single day. That's crazy. Yeah, no, I already bookmarked it, so I'm definitely going to do some research there. <laughs> Super interesting. Yeah, I'll, I'll, we might have to have another chat just on that because I think I'll do some research and, and, and take a look. Because they actually accept individual investors, Okay. Yep. If you're an accredited investor, they then have a couple of different ways in which it's done. What I did with a group of people from New York that were friends of mine who said to me, Joe, I, I can't invest and start following, et cetera, et cetera. And I created basically a group of them. You know, there's 14 all together. Each of them invested whatever. And they actually all have it through one LLC vehicle. And then one has to work, once you have that framework, then you, you can work with our crowd to say, hey, um, 
you're a crowdfunding mechanism. I have a similar business proposition. Can we find a way to marry the two? Mm. Yeah, because you can actually uh, invest in our card through an LLC as well. Yes. Ah, cool. That's super interesting. Yeah, for the US market, it's very interesting. Yeah, for US investors, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it's even it could be an additional offering rather than you tell guys go to our crowd and then you make no money and nothing out of it. This way, you can uh, create an umbrella structure that says, look, I can, I, I can send out something to my entire base. And if they come, I'll tell them this is the minimum, but I want to aggregate it into a single account. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then, okay, so last but not least, I do want to ask you one, uh, one question um, more on, on the personal uh, space, because uh, I think it's interesting, you know, we talked about it, you, you have your first uh, grandchild born, right? Um, and how did you teach your kids or and uh, about finance first i know uh, we can talk about the grandkids this is only two and a half months old so that will come over time but uh, as a parent right and parent that worked in in finance yeah how was how was your approach to 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 to, to uh, handling that with children talking about investing or in savings and just in general personal finance because i think that's one of the things that's always that's it's it's on no high school curriculum and i think and no school curriculum in in germany either where i went to school right um so so it's always very interesting i studied finance i was always interested in it but when i talked to friends who studied engineering they make good money and stuff right but they never really learned about you know investing and saving so uh, unless their parents helped them right or like they were interested and things like that so how was this for, how was it for you i i don't know if your kids are in finance but what was it back when they were younger i think that finance is in it crucially important aspect, both personally and institutionally. So how did I actually teach my daughter? I'll, I'll tell you a funny story. Um, when she was little, she was collecting caps of some sort. And it didn't matter how much money you gave her. She basically, if you gave her a dollar, she went back and she spent it. If you gave her five dollars, she went back and she spent it. So I thought that this was ridiculous because she needed to understand what budgeting was all about. She was all of five. So I said to her, Jordana, here's how this is going to work. I am going to give you $5 every week. Whatever you have at the end of the week, I will double. No, that's good. <laughs> every week thereafter. So this shows you how it works for kids. So my daughter... You know, at the end of the first week, I went to her and she said, and I said, so? And she said, no, no, it's okay. So I said, okay, so you didn't save anything. That was really dumb. So I gave her $5. So she yeah. waited the second week. And then she said, here, I now have 10. Double it up. <laughs> <laughs> so good. <laughs> so, so she learned that early. Um in, yeah. in terms of actually, um, my, my daughter is a litigation counsel. So in terms of actually trying to get her into the investment space, I used many of the things that I just told you. I, I first, I think the best way that she learned it was when I forced her after the first job to buy a house and to take out a mortgage. Because for the first time, she really needed to understand how to manage finance. The second thing was actually to say to her, okay, now that you have saved some money, decide how much you want to risk and you're ready to prepare. 
to lose completely. And the rest, instead, invest in stocks. You can either invest in index to begin with, or you can pick stocks you like. And with the rest, I introduced there probably about two years ago, two options, a little bit at a time. Though. Yeah, that's cool to hear. So that, because I, I, we always get these questions, right? Because parents asking, what, what should we do with our kids? And I think that was a really good example we have not heard yet. Well, thank you so much, Joe. It was really a pleasure no, chatting. Very much uh, at my end. Thank you. That's it for the show this week. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, subscribe and leave us a review. The reviews really help us. And we love reading your comments as well. In Your Best Interest is hosted by me, Philip Müller, we're produced by Stashaway, and we're mixed by Mo Ramley.